True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. a truly shocking case and one that reminds us that life can be snuffed out in the blink of an eye. So references tonight are The Daily News, New York, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Boston Globe, The History of British Serial Killing by David Wilson, CrimeAndInvestigation.co.uk and CrimeLibrary.com. Now you may notice that this is a UK case from 70 years ago, but there's no UK newspapers there. That was because at the time, reporting on uh, court cases that were pending was virtually illegal so that the accused could get a fair trial. But it was pretty much covered with all the worldwide newspapers because this was shocking to the whole world. So the main character tonight is an Englishman, John George Hay. He was born on the 29th of July 1909 in Stamford, Lincolnshire, the UK, to 40-year-old John Robert Hay and 39-year-old Emily. The family then moved to Leeds, West Yorkshire. The Hay household was a strictly religious household, Hay's parents belonged to the Plymouth Brethren, which is a Protestant-based religion with the belief that the Bible is the supreme authority for church doctrine and practice over and above any other source of authority. The household didn't celebrate Christmas, and this denied young Hay of some of the niceties that other kids got. As a kid, Haig liked to fuck around a bit, not in the literal sense, more in the cruel joke and animal cruelty sense. It's reported that he once chased a piglet until it died of exhaustion and that he pulled the chair out from an elderly organist, causing him to fall and injure himself. He was quite musical though and apparently he would only play the piano with gloves on to protect his delicate fingers. He had recurring dreams of Christ bleeding on the cross and as his mum analysed dreams, she told him that the wrath of God was present for the boy. He felt he must perform acts of humiliation on himself and he was taking the Bible literally. He would also do the bare grillus by drinking his own piss. Improvise, adapt and overcome. At school, he found that he had a talent for forging signatures and used this talent to get out of class. (laughs) Now, Hay liked to dress well. He was very personable when required and he had these piercing blue eyes. He had a knack of being able to make people feel comfortable around him and he presented himself as a charming and well-to-do or dapper sort of guy, dapper. 
He married a Leeds waitress, Betty Hamer, in 1934. Later in the year, he went to jail for four months for fraud. He got busted selling cars that didn't exist. He'd been working in a garage, but that just didn't give him the money and lifestyle he thought he deserved. When he got out of jail, he, it didn't take long before he was back inside after being done for fraudulent stock schemes. Although he had little interest in sex, apparently Betty got pregnant and had the child while Hay was doing one of those stints in jail. She had the kid but adopted it out never to see it again and left Haig for good. In 1936, Haig had a job for a few months working at an amusement parlour owned by Donald McSwan. He was chauffeur for Donald and helped maintain the amusement machines. It's here he would get to know William McSwan, Donald's son. But again, Haig couldn't help himself. He quit his job to con more people out of their money. He set himself up as a fake solicitor, sold fake shares and bonds, but got busted because he spelt the name Guildford without a D on his business card. And a canny potential investor noticed this and called the police, telling them that a real solicitor wouldn't make such a basic mistake. So, Islanders, it's just not the same without the D, is it? He got busted again and sent away for four years this time. In 1940, on release from prison, he again went back to his favourite profession of conning people out of their money. In 1941, he again got busted and spent another 18 months in jail. Now, while in prison, he got a few tips from some of the other inmates. You see, basically, when you want to pull a con or some sort of fraudulent scheme, you have to show your face. If you're just robbing a bank or jewellery shop, you can go in with a gun and a mask, rob the place and then run off. With a con, you have to get close up and personal. It's also usually a long game where you find a mark and do whatever your scheme or con is, then you're left with witnesses who can probably describe you to a T. Now, this might work for a while, but eventually you're going to have a lot of people looking for you and you're going to get caught as Haig had experienced. That is, unless the mark disappears. This got Haig thinking while he was inside. If he could work out a way to get rid of his victims after he conned them, then he had very little chance of getting caught. He did read a few books inside, chemistry books and law books. He mistakenly thought that if you could dispose of a body and it could not be found, then you couldn't get busted. He thought corpus delecti, which in legal terms means the body of evidence, well, he thought that meant that if you didn't have a body, meaning a human body, that you could not be convicted of, in his case, murder. He also read about a French serial killer, George Alexander Serret, and while inside, he concocted a plan that if he could dissolve a body in acid, that he would be immune to prosecution. The reason he kept going back inside was because his victims lived to tell the tale. 
Now, he was able to steal some H2SO4 or sulfuric acid from one of the jail workshops and field mice from other prisoners that were allowed to work outside the prison fence. He experimented dissolving the field mice in the acid as he had a grand plan for when he would finally be released. On his release, Haig rented a basement area at 79 Gloucester Road, London, SW7. Now, if you look on Google Maps, it's now the site of a patisserie. Now, the building there is incorrectly numbered as 77 on Street View. Maybe, probably to keep true crime fans away and point them towards the KFC on the other side. Anyway, in this basement, he started to gather the tools of his new trade. He needed rubber gloves, a rubber coat, a war-era gas mask, a couple of old oil drums, and by setting up a fake company, he was able to get hold of sulfuric acid. By chance, in the summer of 1945, Haig ran into William McSwan, the son of his old employer, at the Goat Tavern in Kensington. Over several days, they met there and Haig found out that William's job was to collect rents from his parents' properties. William made quite a good living out of this and Haig wanted some of the action. In conversations, the maintenance of the pinball machines at McSwan's amusement arcades came up and Haig told William that he had a factory area that he could fix pinball machines in. Haig invited William to come and have a look at the workshop and he agreed. On the 6th of September 1944, Haig and William went to the basement workshop and as William turned away, Haig hit him over the head with a kosh or blackjack, which is a thick, heavy stick or bar used as a weapon. I love those terms. I tapped him on the head with a kosh. He then dismembered the body and put it in one of the oil drums. He filled the drum with acid and then met up with William's parents, Donald and Amy, to tell them that William had left for Scotland to avoid conscription into the army. He then took over William's house and started collecting the rents for the McSwans as well. Fuck, he is good, isn't he? Now, it took a couple of days to dissolve most of William, and Haig tipped the sludge that was left into a drain in the workshop. Now, as Senga, one of the learned chemists on the island, will tell you, not only will there be sludge if you try to dissolve a body in acid, but there will probably be other bits left over. And I don't mean to say she's tried dissolving bodies in acid, but I do try to keep on her good side. Now, Hay, being a, an excellent forger, sent the McSwans letters that he forged in William's handwriting. Now, Haig, as a professional con man, he looks well-dressed and has this confident air about him. The McSwans were sure Haig was doing the best for William and for them as well. Haig was able to live quite a good lifestyle collecting the rents for the McSwans, but he wanted more. He wanted the properties as well. In July of 1945, the war in Europe was over and winding down, and the McSwans were wondering why William had not come home. Haig finally told them that William was waiting for them in his Gloucester Road workshop and offered to take them there for a surprise visit. 
First he took Donald there, and once inside the workshop, he hit him over the head with his cosh. Then later that day, he took Amy there and killed her the same way. He had two oil barrels and dissolved both of them over the next couple of days, then tipped them down the drain. He then let it be known that they'd gone to America and he was able to forge a power of attorney document to take possession of all their property and sell it. He then moved into the Onslow Court Hotel, 108A Queensgate, Kensington. It's now known as the Kensington Hotel. At the time, this place housed mainly older, hoity-toity or well-off, snobby residents. Now, I love the way the papers describe the residents, hoity-toity. I mean, what a word. Haig stood out there a bit as he was under 40 years old, not the 60-plus like most of the hoity-toities. He was living off the proceeds of the McSwans, but this wasn't going to last forever, and apparently he did gamble a bit. So he had to look for new money. Haig then moved his workshop to 2 Leopold Road Crawley in West Sussex. Now it's about 28 miles or 45 kilometres south of London. While reading the paper, Haig came across an ad for the sale of a property by 52-year-old Dr Archie Henderson. Now he was formerly of the Royal Army Medical Corps and his wife Rose, well she was a former beauty queen. Hay offered the Hendersons more money than the property was worth. Now this got them very interested. The sale ultimately didn't go through, but it gave Haig time to work his way into their lives. He got to know them quite well, as he did with all his victims. He used their shared love of music to get close to them, although at first Rosalie was wary of him. Eventually they accepted Haig as a friend, and saw him as a successful businessman. At one stage, Rosalie invited Haig to their house to play the piano for their housewarming party. It's here that Haig finds and steals Dr. Henderson's revolver. In February 1948, though, Haig needed money, so he devised a plan to lure the Hendersons into his new workshop in Leopold Road, Crawley. The Hendersons were staying at the Metropole Hotel in Brighton at the time and he discussed with Dr Henderson a business opportunity that they could work out of his workshop and that he should come up to Crawley to discuss it further. On the 12th of February 1948, he took Dr Henderson to the workshop and as soon as he got, he got the chance, Hay shot him in the back of the head with the revolver he'd stolen from him previously. He then went back to the Metropole Hotel, spoke to Rosalie and told her that her husband had become ill and she should come with him straight away to the workshop. Well, Rosalie let her guard down and didn't think twice about going with Haig if her husband was ill. As soon as he got her in the workshop, he shot her in the back of the head as well. As before, he stripped them of their valuables, he got some rings watches, jewellery and even Archie's gold cigarette lighter. Then he put the bodies into oil drums and dissolved them in acid. Now this location didn't have a proper drain like the Gloucester Road location 
So he couldn't just tip the sludge into it and have it end up in the Thames. He decided to use a corner of the workshop's yard to empty the barrels. Now, Rosalie's brother, Arnold Berlin, he started asking questions around where his sister and her husband were. Haig tried to reassure him that they'd gone away to sort out their marriage, but he didn't buy it. So Haig set about forging letters to Arnold from Rosalie. Now, because Haig had got to know the couple so well, he was able to make the letters credible by including familiar phrases and personal stories. He wrote that they'd gone to South Africa, well, actually fled there, after Archie had performed an illegal abortion. This got Arnold off Haig's back, and because it looked like they'd fled to South Africa, the brother was hesitant to follow it up any further, especially with police. Now this Haig is quite good. As with the McSwan's assets, Haig forged documents to take control of everything and sold it all off. It only took six months for Haig to need a new victim as he'd spent most of the Henderson's wealth. As Haig was living at the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington, he had ample opportunity to listen in to conversations in the dining room. One night, wealthy widow Olive, Henrietta, Helen, Olivia, Robarts, Duran Deacon, now how's that for a name? Well, Ollie, or Olive, was having dinner with her friend, Mrs. Biron, and they discussed an idea to make plastic fingernails. Haig saw that as an opportunity and invited himself to sit with the ladies and discuss it further. He told Olive that he had a workshop that would be perfect to make these fingernails and offered to take her there and show her around. On the 17th of February 1949, Haig organised to meet Olive outside the Army and Navy stores in Victoria Street, London. He picked her up in his car and drove her to his workshop in Crawley. Now this workshop wasn't anything pretty. It was very small and to get to it you had to walk through what could only be described as a very filthy yard with shit piled up everywhere. So the sight of an impeccably dressed Olive, done up like a dog's dinner, wearing all her rings, jewellery, a fur coat and pearls, walking through this filthy yard on the way to the workshop, would have been so out of place. But Hagg is good at what he does. Apparently no one noticed. When he got her inside, he distracted her with a piece of red paper, which he told her would be the basis of the plastic fingernails. As she studied it, Haig shot her in the back of the head with the Henderson stolen revolver. Again, he stripped her of her valuables and dissolved her in acid. He then went for a poached egg at the old ancient Prior's tea shop. I think that's still there as well. Now, with all of his prior victims, Haig was able to assure anyone who noticed them missing that they were fine and had just gone away. He was able to do this as he got to know them so well that he could make up believable stories. Now, Olive was noticed missing straight away. Haig had made sure to meet her away from the Onslow Court Hotel at the Army and Navy stores so that no one would see him go off with her. 
Olive's friend, Mrs Constance Lane, asked Haig on his return to the hotel how the trip with Olive to his workshop had gone that day. Now Haig told Mrs Lane that he waited for her at the Army and Navy stores, but she failed to turn up. As Olive was still missing the following morning, this really started to worry Mrs Lane as Olive wasn't the type of person to really leave the hotel at all. Sort of like us in isolation, I guess. Haig returned to the workshop to empty the sludge, which had been Olive, but it looks like it needed a few more days to dissolve completely. He also went to sell her jewellery and took her fur coat to the cleaners. I think probably had blood all over it. A couple of days later, Mrs Lane spoke to Haig and told him that she was going to go and report Olive missing to the rip- to the police. Now this must have been a sphincter-clenching moment for Haig. With his supreme confidence and wanting to probably be in some sort of control of the situation, he offered to take Mrs Lane to the Chelsea Police Station himself. Now, there are other reports that Haig came up to Mrs Lane and he was the one who said they should go to police, but I think this version is closer to the truth. Anyway, they end up at the Chelsea Police Station. Now, this is where Haig comes undone. They speak to woman police sergeant Alexandra Lamborn. She was immediately suspicious of the charming and smooth Haig, so after he and Mrs Lane left, she bit a, did a bit of a background check on him. Lamborn uncovered Haig's extensive criminal past and ended up organising a search of the workshop in Crawley. Here they found all of Haig's equipment, the rubber coats, gas marks, empty jugs that had contained the acid, and that's not all. They also found a recently fired revolver, ration books in the name of the McSwans, and a dry cleaning ticket for Olive's fur coat. Now police went back to the Onslow Court Hotel and asked Haig to come downtown and assist with their investigation. Now it wouldn't be long before eventually he would confess to murdering Olive Duran Deacon. He told police, I've destroyed her with acid. You'll find the sludge that remains at Leopold Road. Every trace is gone. How can you prove murder if there's no body? This is this corpus delecti thing again. He would also go on to confess that he'd also murdered the McSwans and the Hendersons. A further search of the Leopold Road location found bloodstains in the workshop and a hat pin at the bottom of an oil drum. They found where Hay disposed of the sludge and here they found 28 pounds of fat, a foot, three gallstones and a set of dentures. The dentures would be identified as Olive Duran Deacons. Now during his interrogation, Hay told police that he killed each of his victims to drink their blood. He also told them he killed three other people. Now this would be dismissed as being part of a plan to get out of the death penalty and be sent to a mental hospital. He was trying to build a narrative that he could, that he was insane to get out of the death penalty. On the 18th of July 1949, 
4,000 people crowded in the town of Luz hoping to get a seat in the court for Haig's trial for the murder of Olive Durand Deacon. Now, the law at the time meant he would only be tried for this one count of murder, well, at least this at this stage. They wouldn't lob them all together. Haig had no money for a lawyer, so did a deal with a newspaper to provide them with an exclusive story if they paid for his defence. Haig pleaded not guilty. He relied on a defence of insanity. Now, when he said he drank the blood of his victims, he was portrayed in the media as a vampire. He hoped this would prove he was insane. However, it was found that because he tried to cover up his crimes, he was sane enough to know what he'd done was wrong. Also, he had inquired on how easy it was to get out of the Broadmoor Mental Hospital where he would be sent if found insane. He'd asked the investigating officer when he was arrested, Tell me, frankly, what are the chances of anybody being released from Broadmoor? So, they saw this as one of the ways he was planning on avoiding the gallows by planning to go down the insanity defence route. It took only 15 minutes for the jury to come to a consensus. Hay was guilty. The judge asked if he had anything to say for himself. He cocked his head and said, Nothing at all. The judge donned a black cap and sentenced Hay to die. On August 6, 1949, at Wandsworth Prison, John George Hay was executed. Now, geez, that's fast. That was just two weeks after the trial. They didn't fuck around back then. A death, a death mask was made of Hay, and he, and he had bequeathed his clothing to Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors, where they made a wax figure of him. Now, I think it's still there, so get on down if it's open. He sent instructions that it must always be kept in perfect condition, the trousers creased, the hair parted, and his shirt cuffs showing. What a dapper hoity-toity dude. So, Islanders, what a crazy case. In the space of about five years, this common killed at least six people. He didn't do it for some impulse or bloodlust or murder. He did it to maintain some sort of high social life, one he didn't want to work for. What is amazing is that the people he killed were living quite comfortably on the assets they had, but Hay could only survive for a very short time on those assets once he was able to transfer them to himself. He was a gambler and liked to spend money, but if he'd been able to manage his finances better, he probably wouldn't have had to kill anyone after the McSwans, and surely not after the Hendersons, and he probably would have gone undetected. The people he murdered were certainly going to be missed by someone, but he was able to deflect suspicion quite successfully. That is until he knocked off old Olive Duran Deacon, whose friend Mrs Lane contacted police. Luckily, the officer she talked to gave a shit enough to contact Scotland Yard and get a background check done on Haig, who she thought was as dodgy as fuck. Haig had... <laughs> as a lot of serial killers do, had become a little bit sloppy in his methods and just left too much evidence behind. 
Now, these common and women, I suppose, <laughs> women there as well, are some of the scariest villains around. Their victims let them into their lives as friends and partners, business partners or whatever, gain people's trust, and then boom, fuckalunga, you're dead and all your shit's gone. Oh, often the perp does this under an assumed name. But Haig did this in the open, using his real name, except for when he'd set up some dodgy businesses. But basically, he didn't try to hide his identity. I think he got what he deserved, and it's good that his insanity defence didn't work out for him. He was 40 when he died, and if he'd got out when he was 60 or so, I'm sure he would have just gone back to his old ways. The only way he knew how to live. Imagine if he'd put his intelligence and efforts into something worthwhile. What's really scary is that there's people just like Haig out there right now. And with that thought, I'll end the show. Let's get on. Let's do the Patreon shoutouts. So, Patreon, thanks to all my past and present and new patrons, your financial support does make a difference. True Crime Island is commercial free for all. So this week we've got Ambera Tolbert. Thank you so much. It's very much appreciated. This, to do a Patreon thing, you go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Now, if you don't like the monthly thing, you can also donate to PayPal. The PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com. I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble. So go to Redbubble and search for True Crime Island. You can also support the show for your charge by rating and reviewing. But what I really like is if you share it with your friends and family. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Don't forget the YouTube channel as well. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Good night.